You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Don Norman, who is Professor Emeritus at UC San Diego also the author of many books. Most famous, I think, was the first one, which is called The Design of Everyday Things, which, gosh, this thing's been around for now 34 years or so. It's just incredibly influential, and I go back to it all the time. But you've also got a bunch of other books, including Emotional Design, Why We Love or Hate Everyday Things, The Design of Future Things. You have Turn Signals or the Facial Expressions of Automobiles, Things that make us smart, which I couldn't seem to find. I was looking around and couldn't find it. Living with complexity. And the most recent book, which I have preprint here of, is called Design for a Better World. Welcome, Don. Thank you. You're right. Those are my um, books about design. But actually, what you said was my first book was about my 11th book. Because before I did that, I did books on psychology, computer science, cognitive science, they were more academic books and used as texts, but yeah, I've done, this new book is my 21st or 22nd book. Well, look, this whole idea of design, people think of this as a specialty. And I guess when it was limited to industrial design as a class in engineering schools, it was indeed something of a specialty. But I think you quote Herb Simon as saying that design is really the science of the, the artificial. And if that's the case, then design is really, it's nomos, right? It's the thing that the Greeks referred to as like anything that has the kind of hand of man on it is within the domain of design. So design is really, it's a very interdisciplinary thing if you understand it broadly. When I say everybody is a designer, some of my design friends get very angry at me. He says, no, you're not a designer because it's really hard. You have to study and understand and there's many, many subtleties. That's true. But then I say, everybody's a tennis player. And that means there is a difference between the skills of a professional and the skills of an amateur. And so don't worry about the fact that everybody plays tennis. It actually makes them appreciate the skills of a professional even more. The one thing is not everything that people make is what I would call design. Design has to be intentional. So it can't be accidental. It's something that you deliberately changed the world to make it better for you yourself. It may make it worse for other people. And I argued in this new book that almost everything is artificial. Design is a science of the artificial, as Herb Simon said. That doesn't mean that everything is artificial is design. And it's been designed, though, by people over thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. But that's a positive thing in the sense that if everything is artificial, we could change it. Except that, and the whole point of the book is, The world is in crisis with all sorts of problems. And many people are writing these wonderful books to tell you how the solutions and the solutions are almost always technological. And I say, those are important. We need to do all those technological solutions. But the most difficult problem is human behavior. So, okay, design is an intentional sculpting of the environment. But I think people still think of that as involving, as you say, technology, physical objects. Because what is technology? The shirt I'm wearing is technology. A pencil is technology. So yes, everything that we create and manufacture and so on is technology. And back to the fact that 
there's a difference between what professional designers do and their skills and what amateurs do. Unfortunately, the design profession started in roughly the 1700s, early 1800s during the Industrial Revolution as a way of selling products better. Wedgwood, China, where they hired designers so they could sell their China to everybody. They were the first company to sell China, not to the very rich, but to the more everyday citizen. And design has always been a way of letting companies make more money. And that profit motive has been bad. And second of all, it meant that design was often thought of in the beginning. It was a decoration. It was, oh, make it pretty. In industrial designers, they were to do the cases to make the outside attractive and aesthetically pleasing. And you see that in Apple Computer, which makes these wonderful, beautiful cases around their equipment and has the use of Apple used to be known. I was a vice president at Apple during the time when we were known as you didn't need to read the manual. It was self-explanatory. Everything was easy to do and you could learn it by yourself. And that's not true anymore because the damn designers got a hold of it and said, Ooh, putting words on the screens or menus or drop down menus are ugly. And so we've got to get rid of all those words to get in the way. And if we have to have a few words, well, we'll make it in small type with low contrast so it doesn't destroy the aesthetics. And meanwhile, they put together devices that destroy the environment in manufacturing, in mining to get the materials, in usage. And then because they're so difficult to take apart and reuse any of the components, in disposal. And in 1971, a famous designer, Victor Papanek, argued that there is no field more dangerous than design because it makes all the crap that people don't need that destroys the world. And then he said, well, maybe there's another field that's even more dangerous, and that's advertising that convinces people to buy all this crap. Well, he was wrong. He was right, but he was wrong. He was wrong to blame designers because designers, oh, we're the sort of people that make things sellable. So they are never in the senior parts of a company. They're always in the middle. You have to follow orders. And if you try to say, oh, but this is destructive of the environment, you'll get fired. Even in the university, design is never the most important department we have in the university. It's sort of in the middle and it's often in the art department. It's thought of as a specialty of art. And often the degree in the United States is a bachelor of fine arts or master of fine arts. We are not fine arts. We are not artists. We are designing for other people. We're not designing for ourselves, which is what artists do. I'm not complaining about art. I love art. It's important and wonderful, but it's different from what we do. So we have to overcome this history. And I claim that means we have to retrain designers, which is why I was teaching design in the business school at Northwestern, because design is a way of thinking and attacking a problem. We teach engineers and business people how to solve problems. They're good at solving problems. They never stop to say, is this the right problem? And the first thing we teach designers is don't solve the problem that people ask you to solve. Step back and find out what is the real problem? Well, I mean, a lot of business schools have incorporated something they call design thinking into their curricula. And when I remember reading your book 30 years ago or so, you know, I immediately started thinking about applications outside of the design of physical products. I saw immediately that what you were talking about was 
process design, about business model design, mechanism design, environmental design. And in your work, you've shifted your attention more and more to the design of services, the design of experiences. And I think even in the book, Living with Complexity, comes to the top of the discussion where you're talking about designers as semioticians, designing environments that have meaning, that contain signifiers. You've fleshed out this concept of affordances that you introduced in, into this discussion back then. Is your evolution expanding the scope of what you think of as design? That seems to be reflected out there in the broader world and how this concept of design has permeated everything. I mean, I know in, in my field in economics, we talk about organizational design. I teach a course on organizational design and mechanism design. Are those misappropriations or is that really the logical extension of these concepts? You are absolutely correct that to me, design is it's a science of the artificial, yeah, but the organization of a company or a country is artificial too. And in fact, it's not easy because people are really good at working together in groups of four or five. And as the groups get larger and larger, it's difficult. And so that's why a manager, the rule of thumb is a manager can only manage five to seven people. And then if you follow that, you end up with a hierarchy. But a hierarchy then becomes very unwieldy. And companies, when they have thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, there are a few companies that have a million employees. How do you manage that? What's the organizational structure? That's a design question. Absolutely. And it's difficult. And some of the answers can't be answered. So, for example, the universities, I think, are responsible for evil because at universities, especially the highest quality universities, the research universities, want to hire the very best people in their field. And what that means is they hire specialists who are really good experts, and it's good to have that expert knowledge, but they know almost nothing about other fields. And so we end up with silos. And we now re recapitulate those silos in industry. We have the marketing division and the designers, and we have the engineering, and we have the sales, and we have et cetera, et cetera. And no, because when you're actually making something, you have to cut across all the fields. And it's really important to understand all of that. So design education has, again, increased to specialization. The biggest design field is graphic design. Make all the signs and make all the communication things. And more and more, that's become an art. And so you get these wonderful signs that you can't read and you can't understand. And you say, what on earth are you talking about? What's the date? What's the time? That's what I want to know. And we've lost track of that. But to your point, I think that what is important about design is that we really try to design from the point of view of the person that's going to receive the results. And so from the point of view of an organization, how does that improve the coordination among all the groups? And one of the problems, for example, is should marketing be central to the company or it should be divided up into each of the product groups? Yeah. And the same is true of design and the same is true of engineering. And the answer is there's benefits and weaknesses in both ways. If everybody's in the core of the company, we have consistency, but it slows up decision-making and it prevents a lot of innovation. And if you put people in different parts of a company, then the different components of the company don't even, are often quite different from each other and they can't even communicate with each other. And so what I've told people is here's what the proper organization philosophy is. You should restructure the company every five or six years. Because every time you restructure, you mix up all the old groups and you mix them into new ways. And it's all sorts of your friends are now in some other division. And that's good because now you have a contact with the other divisions. And so it increases communication. 
but it's disruptive for about six months. It just wrecks everything. And that's why you shouldn't do it every year. You should do it every five or six years. And more and more, this is going to be the issue. We are facing what are called wicked problems, problems that are hard to define, problems that are, we don't know what the solution is. We don't even recognize the solution if we have one. In fact, there may be no solution. And the organization of a company is a good example of one where there is no ideal solution. Yeah, so organizational design is really about facilitating communication channels, creating teams. And when you create a team, what you're doing is you're directing communications one way versus another way. And you can do this physically by putting people into different parts of a building, or you can do it structurally by organizing how they have to work. And when people come to Silicon Valley from abroad, trying to figure out like what the secrets are to what happens here, I usually tell them, you're here to learn, you think you're here to learn about cloud computing, you think you're here to learn about machine learning and so forth, but really what you're here to learn about is a different way of organizing companies. Because I do think that the most innovative companies have a very different organizational architecture. What's interesting is that the COVID crisis has caused a lot of the work to be occurred, just like you and I are now talking on Zoom. And that's actually changed a lot about organizational structure, what we understand, because now co-location isn't quite as important as it ever was. Because I can have an intense conversation with somebody, like with you, and it doesn't matter where in the world each of us is. And that was not true. Even though the technology existed before COVID, it was hard, almost never used. And so I think a lot of what we think about the proper organizational structure is going to undergo a lot of change as people come to grips with how we do this, because there are benefits to coming together in person. Most especially, you get to know each of people as a person. And I claim that the real importance of meeting together is not the meeting. It's what you do afterwards, especially if people have flown in. It means they, they eat dinner together and they drink together and they party together. And that makes a big difference in the communication abilities. And so you can't do that on Zoom, but you can do the work on Zoom. Well, it's certainly true of education, right? As we're shifting to more remote models, there's this term called human-centered design, which has become quite popular. And based on your work, that seems redundant. The whole thrust of your work is that the essence of good design is that you have to have empathy, right? And in our design thinking courses, we try to start with that. How do you become more of kind of an anthropologist, a psychologist, a sociologist? How do you learn to put yourself in the position of the people who are actually going to be using the product or experiencing the service. Why do we need to call it human-centered design, right? Why do we need to continually re-emphasize that design is for humans, right? I mean, because... it's possible to forget that. I remember there was a course called <laughs> Human Factors that, that we offered in the engineering school. And it was like, oh yeah, you've learned all this other stuff, like how to build a bridge. Now we're gonna learn about humans. And it's like, well, wait, <laughs> what? What was the bridge for in the first place? You know, it wasn't for moose. So how did it ever get to be the case that the human aspect was kind of an add-on? Well, what happened, I think, is that, well, first of all, in the design community, people were all set up, were all focused on the appearance. It was all about the appearance up until the, I'm not sure until when, it was late in the 1900s, like 1960s. In the old days, it used to be mechanical. People could usually figure it out because you can see it, you can move things, you can pull this lever and see what it does and so on. And so there wasn't too much focus on the people. 
they did develop a field that's called human factors. I'm actually a fellow of the human factors in ergonomic society. And that's where I started in some sense, because it was a, a branch of psychology. It was applied psychology. And that was to say, well, let's make sure that you make the, the chairs the size that people are. And then you put the controls where people can actually reach. And so a lot of it was all physical to make sure it fit the body and so on. And then as cognition became an important field in psychology, there became a field that's called cognitive ergonomics. And I actually named it once cognitive engineering. And that still is an important field to engineer things that people could understand, not just reach and use physically, but understand the usage and what's going on. And that field has actually permeated the design field. And so what I claim Interaction design has had two different homes. One of them is from the design home, from industrial designers, and they still didn't truly understand people. And the other was from the psychology field and people like me who are trying to understand the fundamental principles of interaction of feedback loops. That wasn't part of the ordinary discussion beforehand. And those two fields, they didn't know about each other for a long time, but they've now converged. And so interaction design has become an important one. But as we did this in my early work, I said we had to focus on people. And I wrote an early book called User-Centered System Design, which has happened to be the initials of my university, UCSD. But later on, I decided the word user was, no, the wrong word to call. I don't call you a user. I wanted to call you a person, a human. So I said human-centered design. I should have said people-centered design because I don't call you a human either. I call you a person. And that was somewhat of a change that, that lots of designers started thinking more about people. Now, I don't believe in empathy because empathy means in the mind of to understand how somebody feels. And we actually can't do that. But you do have to understand the issues that people face and how they try to address them and the difficulties they have. And so human factors has been an important role. But here's the problem with the field of human factors. They're really good at analyzing the problems, but they don't know how to solve them. So I once gave a talk to, <laughs> I was asked to give <clears throat> two keynote addresses in the same year. One was to the Industrial Design Society and the other was to the Human Factors Society. In the Human Factors Society, I said, you do wonderful work, but what you do is you're like the fire department. You put out the fires. It's, you ought to prevent the fires from happening in the first place. You need to understand design. You want to be more, better designers and learn that field or partner with designers. And when I gave the talk to the design one, I said, you do wonderful stuff, but you don't take into account enough about the person. So you want to learn more about human factors and bring them in. Well, it turns out both talks were failures that the senior people hated them. They just hated them. And afterwards, all the junior people in the audience came up to me and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. Today, you don't have to give that talk, but focusing on the person is wonderful if you're trying to make the product sell better. But that is also, it means that we completely ignore the impact on the world. And so today, the, my book is called Design for a Better World, Meaningful, Sustainable, and Humanity-Centered, not human-centered, humanity. Now, you can't really, what does humanity-centered mean? It's really hard to take a three-word phrase and explain everything it might mean. But it means really thinking larger, more broadly about the impact upon the world. 
about the environment, about all the animals, all the living creatures, about all the different types of ethnic groups that we have around the world, not just the European-centered groups, which is how everything has been taught of. And in fact, if you even go to the middle of India and go to a design school, it's all European-based because all the professors were taught from European-based schools. And I include the United States in the European. So today it's not human-centered. But human-centered is an important component of humanity-centered. It's just that it isn't enough. We have to worry about, well, climate change, about the environment, about the loss of species, about the loss of natural habitats, and about the way we've treated all the disadvantaged people in the world. And what does disadvantage mean? It means we've treated them badly. I was just teaching my classes yesterday and had fresh in my mind some of the work that I was reading of yours. And of course, it's right around finals time. So everybody's confused because they've got this massive amount of information <laughs> that they have to somehow regurgitate for their exams and so forth. And uh, they're saying everything's complicated and complex. And I'm saying, no, actually, it's quite simple. And so I used a lot of the metaphors in your book on complexity to discuss, like, how can you convert the complex into the simple rather than letting it become complicated? And I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that. Why do we see things as complex and why do we see things as simple? I think a lot of us think that this is an inherent characteristic of a phenomenon. And I think you emphasize that the way in which we view something is a function of the mental models that we bring to the phenomenon. So part of, I think, education is really about adding to your stock of mental models. So it's not just developing more sophisticated mental models, but adding to your inventory of mental models and being able to switch back and forth between them. To what extent is the role of the teacher similar to the role of the designer in facilitating right, this construction of mental models and teaching people how to bring those models to the phenomena that they see? I've tried in my courses and also in the new design lab that I developed at UC San Diego to say we shouldn't talk about teaching. We should talk about learning. And what the good instructor does is to facilitate the learning. So, for example, I refuse to give final exams. What I do is I have a final project. But the final project requires them to create and put together. And the second item is about simplicity, complexity. The world is complex and is unintelligible. We cannot understand the complexity of the systems that go on because, first of all, they're nonlinear. Second of all, there are huge numbers of feed forward and feedback loops. And I argue that people can understand one or two feedback loops, but not anymore. And second, and then finally, these are not only nonlinear, but some of the feedback loops may take a decade before they have any impact. And that's really hard to understand. And so many people don't even understand the simple thermostat they have in their home, which is just one simple feedback loop. But now back to the other issue. In the book, Living with Complexity, I argue that simplicity is in the head, it's not in the world. If you understand something, it's simple. And if you don't understand it, it's complicated. And somebody once argued, <laughs> I read this piece, why can't we make everything simple and easy to use? Like my garage door opener just has one button. And that, that's why do we have to have so many different buttons? Well, actually, it only has one button because it only does one thing. If you really want to make something that's... Well, but, then, but then people are going to complain, why can't I open the garage with my phone? Why do I need this separate device that you know is dedicated to opening the garage? Then you need a button to turn on the phone. 
Then you need some way of figuring out where the control is for the garage door. And then you have to launch that one. And then, yes, you finally get there. You can push the button that says open. And maybe today we can say open the garage door. But you have to be careful about speech. People think speech is the easy solution to everything. And I say, have you ever had a friend or an assistant that you asked to do a job and you explained in great detail what should be done and they did it all wrong? Well, that shows you using speech does not necessarily make it better. But let me get back to it's in the head. I point out that if I cook, I wake up in the morning and I make breakfast and everything is where it ought to be. And I have no problem making breakfast. Now, I visit a friend's house and I stay overnight at the friend's house and I wake up in the morning. This happened to me. I woke up in the morning and I wanted a cup of coffee and I went into his kitchen and there were three different coffee makers and there were three different kinds of grinders. And as far as I could tell, it was great at making 100 cups of coffee. I just wanted one. And I walked around and I could not make myself a cup of coffee. When my friend woke up, I told him about this. He goes, oh, let's just do it this way. And he goes off. But the point is, I organize my kitchen the way I think, the way my wife and I think. We put our stuff there. It's there the way we work. And if I go to your house and try to use your kitchen, it also is organized so it works well for you and your family. But for me, it's a disaster. And so, again, that shows you that simplicity is in my head because of the way it's organized. The actual physical complexity of your kitchen is probably the same as my kitchen. So that's one thing. But let me point out that in the world today, and one of the things I point out in the book is we use the air conditioner to cool our homes. But have you thought about where does the heat go out of your home? What goes outside? But actually, the air conditioner puts more heat outside than it was in your home because nothing is 100% efficient. That's the second law of thermodynamics. But So we're putting out more heat into the atmosphere than we're taking out of your home. Does that make any difference in the world? Well, no, it's a small air conditioner, just a small home or just my room. But there are several billion air conditioners in the world. And so what they're doing is heating the atmosphere. And in five years or so, that means you have to use your air conditioner more. And I haven't even talked about where does the energy come from to run your air conditioner. An electric generating plants hundreds of miles away, where most of the electricity that's generated, first of all, the energy that it uses to create the energy is not efficient completely. So more atmospheric warming. And second, transmitting the electricity to your home is not completely efficient. More energy going to the atmosphere. People don't understand that, and I don't blame them. It's really complicated. So there are some things, because people understand linear causality. If I pick up something and I let go, it falls. Yeah, that's simple. And if I do something, I expect a result immediately. And if the result comes a day later, what? And they also assume things are linear. They also assume things are pretty simple and straightforward. But their notion of causality is actually wonderful for getting through the everyday phenomena, but not for treating things like COVID, not for treating things like climate change. And so people there were the same sort of way that we think when danger strikes or damage happens, we're really good at banding together and solving the problem, but we're not good at banding together to solve the problem so that we can avoid the problem in the first place. People predicted COVID. They didn't predict the details of COVID. But they knew there was going to be a major worldwide epidemic, a pandemic. And there were all sorts of plans on how we should deal with it. But none of them ever got 
They just got filed away. And that's happening. It's going to happen again. We're going to have another big pandemic. It's happening with climate change. People are predicting the disaster of climate change for 20, 30, 40 years. It isn't just that we can explain everything and we can make it so you could all understand. No, some things are too difficult to explain. We talk in economics about downstream consequences. We talk about spillover effects and externalities, and these are ignored to a large extent by actors. Externalities is something I really take apart in the book. I really am hard on economists because an externality is something I make things in the factory and I spit out fumes into the air and waste into the water and the land. But once it's out of my factory, it's not my responsibility. It's an externality. Now, all that's correct and naming it that is not bad. But now it's not so much up to the economists. The economists no longer put it into the cost structure of the factory. That's a problem. And the legislatures, the politicians, no longer try to say, you're responsible for that. You have to clean it up yourself. And that's the problem. And then, you know, the gross domestic product, speaking of complexity, that's measuring the complexity of an entire nation. But you summarize it in one number, which is based on how much money they spend every year, whether this money is for good or bad. Now, the critique I make of gross domestic product, every major economist in the world makes the same critique, but we don't stop using it. And one of the problems I claim, and there's a group at Oxford that works on this, is that why do we use a single number to summarize something as complex as a country's economy? And so there's a group in Oxford that's called Donut Economics, where they try to show you a graph, which is really nice because they divide it up to what they think is the most important external factors. So you don't want to say this country is high on gross domestic product. You say this country is great on education, but not so good on healthcare, or really great on this, but not on that. And so they divide it up into the external factors and the societal factors. That's what I mean. That's that easy. You can start to understand. But when you're just given this big number, one single number, what do you make of it? You know, that example that you mentioned of the kitchen, I actually used the exact same example in class yesterday about how I have my kitchen organized so that I can make a huge meal for 50 people in under an hour because I know where everything is. When you go to someone else's kitchen, it's, it's confusing. However, right, there may be some kitchens that you can figure the logic out, right, if there is a logic fairly quickly. There's others where there doesn't appear to be any logic. And if you were designing a kitchen, knowing that other people were going to use it, then you would have to think through what the mental models are of the typical user or the intended user. You mentioned that this term technology only refers to the things that confuse us. And we don't use that term technology to refer to the things that are easy to understand. We don't think of the fork or the knife as a technology. Why is that? Why is it that we start to take for granted the functionality of things that we understand and the things we don't understand cause us some distress? I claim that the definition of technology is the new stuff that we can't understand. But all you have to do is, as it happened to me once, I was in Japan in a hotel eating breakfast and there was a Japanese mother and child and they had Western utensils, fork and knife and so on. And so you began to see the complexity because the mother was trying to teach a child how to use a fork and a spoon and a knife. And it's not easy. It takes a while to learn. But you're right. To them, chopsticks were natural. And for us, it's something we had to learn. There are basically two ways of organizing kitchen. This is simplification. But if you really wanted to make it so anybody could use it, I would say 
here are the knives. All the knives are here. Here are the pots. Here are all, and they're all the pots are here. Oh, or here are all the lids. Here are all the this and that and the other. So anytime you need something, you know exactly where you should go to find it. And that actually you could learn pretty quickly. You can even put labels on the area to say this is where it's located there. And the same with your pantry, the different kinds of foods. But it would also mean you'd be running around the kitchen from this location to that location to that location. And to do one little thing, you might have to go to four or five different places to collect the items. Whereas the other way of organizing it is we put them according to your usage patterns. And that's what most kitchens are organized as, to make it easier to use the things I need for doing my normal stuff is all together in one place. So I have knives in the kitchen. I have a knife location where I have a lot of knives. But I also have a lot of the knives scattered about where they're going to be needed. And that makes my life easier. But since your activity structure is different than mine, not only just the foods you make are different than the ones I make, but even if you made the same thing, you might use different utensils or organize them differently. So that's why organizing by use is better for the person and worse for the new person. If you learn a new language... The hardest things are the irregular verbs and the irregular nouns and all the stuff that's irregular. And, you know, in English, well, you make, you add ed to a verb to make it past tense, which isn't true all the time. And you know where these rules are false? They're, own, they're true in almost every case, except for the most frequently used words. And so the most frequently used words are the ones that are hardest. I'm learning Spanish now. You have two different kinds of two Bs. There's a star and there's ser. And Sarah is to be, but I am is soy. What, why soy instead of um, etc. And in English, the to be verbs and the adjectives and the prepositions are very difficult for others. And again, because language has made it easier for people to speak and understand, but there's a huge learning cost. With the kitchen, so the, oftentimes you'll sort in terms of the things that you need on a daily basis are in the local fridge and the things that you need only occasionally are in the remote fridge, so to speak. And sometimes I get very upset when someone stays in my house and they put away the dishes and they put them in the wrong spot. It makes me question whether or not my organization makes sense because it's not easy for them to see what it is that I'm trying to accomplish. What Amazon and a few others are these people with huge warehouses where they have to fill a customer's orders. And they used to organize it. So every item of the same sort was in one location. And so it was very obvious yeah. where you should go. First of all, it was much harder to store things because you could only store things in the one location and you had to find room. They've changed it now because of computer systems. Now, when the supplies come in, they simply stick them wherever there's room, any place, scattered all over the place because the computer keeps track of it. And so when it's time to pack, to pick the item, to, to fulfill a requirement, well, the computer looks up and says, oh, the nearest location for this one is here, and the nearest location for that one is there. And it works. Now, the problem is it works because there's one central system, namely the computer system, that keeps track of everything and tells you where to go. You can't do that in your own home. The other thing that I heard they did was when they had all of the similar items in the same location, this increased the error rate. If you have all Don Norman's books on the same shelf, then when someone orders Living with Complexity, they might wind up with Design of Future Things. And so if Living with Complexity is surrounded by paper towels and stirring spoons, then when you go to that region or that shelf comes towards the packer, the probability that they're going to grab the wrong thing goes down. So I found that fascinating compromise that was 
concession to the human's propensity to make mistakes. But it's interesting because the logical solution is to put everything that's the same in the same place. And what we're both talking about is it actually has disadvantages, but the disadvantages it logical makes your memory load much easier. And people's yeah. memory loads are critically important that we can't keep unless track of. Unless you could offload it, right? So if you could offload it to some directory. That's what computers are good at, is offloading a lot of this stuff you shouldn't have to remember. Well, I like there's this other thing that I learned that I didn't know about, which is called Tesla's Law. And of course, this is something I'm going to wind up you know, incorporating to my pedagogy. And I'd never heard about this. And the idea is that if you want to make something simple, for the user, and that usually involves more complexity on the back end. So I find that in a lot of bureaucratic organizations, ever trying to figure out why something is the way it is, oftentimes it's because it makes life easier for the administrator. Sometimes not, but that's usually the case. I remember one time when I was talking to an administrator about the student directory. I was like, why don't we have a student directory where I can just find a student, run a search, find a student? They're like, oh, we've got one. Of course, there's no way to search it by feature or anything. It takes an hour to find somebody. And I thought I worked in a restaurant and it would never occur to me that when someone orders a steak that I would walk a cow out into the into the room, although that would certainly be maybe less work you know, than, than killing the thing and chopping it up and cooking it and so forth. So I love this concept that there is this trade-off between yeah. complexity on the back end and complexity on the front end. Yeah, that was Larry Chesler, who was chief scientist at Apple and a vice president, and a good friend of mine. And he said that basically the complexities of all these products stays the same. And the difference is whether the complexity is in the making and designing of it or in the using. And of course, he was saying, we have to put that complexity in the design and think very hard about the people who have to use it so it's easy for them. And that gets lost. And especially in Silicon Valley, where everything's in a rush, there's another law, Norman's law, which is the day the product team is assembled, it's over its budget and behind schedule, which means, therefore, they don't take the time to do the hard work at the beginning that makes it easier for the people to use. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a chef, you don't want the customer to have to do too much work. A little bit of fork and knife action is okay, but they shouldn't have to work too hard. There's something else that, that people don't realize about professional chefs is that when you order something, they don't make it in some sense from scratch when you order it. But starting early in the morning, there are people in that kitchen cutting and slicing and dicing and preparing all of the food so that when it's time to make the meal, for example, they have to have sliced onions or something. It's already there. You just grab the handful and put it in. And so a lot of that background work is already done, makes the chef's life a lot easier and makes, of course, better service for the customer. That's an example of modularity, right? And you, you talk about modularity a lot. I talk about modularity a lot in my classes. And you say that mental models involve organization, modularity, and training. And one example of modularity, we talked about the garage door opener, right? And so people say, I want my phone to be a garage door opener. But that makes the phone more complex. But if the garage door opener has its own dedicated app, then all of a sudden it becomes easier for you to understand, right? So actually, that's true now for many modern automobiles, is yeah. that when I want to open the garage door, I just reach up near the mirror, the rear view mirror, and there's a button. There are three buttons, actually. There's I can choose the button that's for this garage door. So it's a dedicated app, and it's always in the place where I need it. Yeah, and you talk about cockpits. To an outsider, you look at a cockpit, or you listen to the chatter that the control station is providing to the pilot. It sounds very 
complex and off-putting. But for the pilots, for many pilots, if it's, at least it's a well-designed cockpit, they can make a very rapid sense of what's going on. A lot of the early work in human factors was designing of cockpits. Because during the Second World War in the 1940s, there were lots and lots of accidents in airplanes where you would land without lowering the landing gear. You would lower the flaps. You would lower the landing gear when you shouldn't instead of lowering the flaps and all those things. And so the human factors people did a really good job. And so the airline cockpits for commercial aviation especially are very well designed. And I remember I had the same issue. I once was in a modern bus. It's a tour bus, I guess. And there are a million different switches and controls. And I asked the driver, how do you learn them all? And he said, oh, it's no problem because every control is where it ought to be. That's interesting, where it ought to be. But that's how you think about your kitchen and me about my kitchen. Everything is where it ought to be. Now, you say, though, that if there are labels on something, there's already been a failure to some degree. Yeah. So, for example, if I had to label everything in my kitchen, when I'm a newcomer coming to the kitchen, that adds another burden on me. I have to read every single label until I find the one I want. And some of them are ambiguous. Or utensils. Does that mean knives and eating utensils or cooking utensils? And it's amazing, by the way, how many signs say things like, keep this door always shut, and it's on a door that's open. So signs are not the solution. So, you know, in the UK, they, they always have on the street, look right. And the, you don't see look left in the rest of the world. So I always wonder, don't the UK travelers, when they come to the continent, are they more likely to get hit by cars? Because we don't have signs for the UK visitors. Well, that's online. interesting. I think it's I think it's because the smaller countries, if you will, or the smaller domains have to worry about it because they get a large number of people coming in who are not used to driving on the left. Whereas in the United States, we're used so much to driving on the right, it never occurs to us that people might think that you're supposed to drive on the left. I never thought about that one. That's a very interesting point. You spend a lot of time talking about service design. This probably is where most of the design thinking takes place. And you spent a whole big chunk in the complexity book talking about waiting and how people spend a lot of time waiting. The example that I found really interesting is this hospitals. We're always waiting for the doctors. <laughs> doctors aren't typically waiting for us. That sort of is a, it sends the message that the patient time is worth a lot less than the doctor time. And I know people that have been to hospitals like Stanford where, you know, they'll have an appointment at 8 a.m. and then another appointment at 4 p.m. and then another appointment three days later compared to a place like, say, the Mayo Clinic, where they'll have everything lined up and you go in and you get this test and that test and this test and so forth. Why isn't there more attention given to service design in some domains as opposed to others? Is it just simply a level of how much competition there is? Back to the comment we talked about earlier about specialization and silos. Very few people step back and say, let's think about it from the point of view of the patient in this case. For that matter, even the physician's lives are not very good either because nobody has thought about it as a system. The Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, a few are very different. I visited the Mayo Clinic a long time ago when I was an executive at Apple. We were talking to them about using Apple computers. So we got a really good instruction about the way they do things. For example, after the doctor has reviewed a patient, they write up their notes. But Their notes have to be in a very standard format. And in fact, they then are sent to a special task team that rewrites all of the doctor's notes into that special format. 
And these people are not medical experts necessarily, but they're really good experts at making everything standardized. They do send it back to the physician to review so to make sure it's still accurate. But what it means is you can pick up anybody's notes and you know exactly where to look and how to read it. And that's not true in most hospitals. Every person has their own way of writing things. Today, the computer systems have forced them into conformity, but into a horrible conformity because they can't say what they really mean. In fact, I know of physicians who say they have to make the wrong diagnosis on the patient deliberately in order to get permission to give the medication they think the patient needs. The problem is when you make the wrong diagnosis for a good reason, but that wrong diagnosis stays forever into the patient's record and can be harmful later on when someone else is trying to interpret. But the Mayo Clinic was so proud of their system, they said, the very first records we ever did in our first patients were in the same format, and they showed us the early records. They also had pneumatic tubes in those days that interconnected the entire hospital systems and was in many different buildings. It was basically packet switching. We went to one of the packet switches. But there's rooms where all the different pneumatic tubes came together, and there's all these people that pull out the packet. They read the label about where it's supposed to go, and they put it into the correct tube to switch it. But they made it so that you went to see a physician who said, now you have to be x-rayed. By the time you got to the x-ray place, not only were they waiting for you, but their entire records had been sent to them by pneumatic tubes. Well, we don't do that anymore in most of the hospitals. We don't think of it as a system where we're trying to improve not just the productivity and the cost, but the experience of the people who are undergoing it. Well, my understanding is the Mayo Clinic actually is more cost-effective as well. So it's not a trade-off between cost and service quality. Most people who look at productivity and cost look at the short-term. They don't look at the long-term. And the long-term includes, yeah, everything is more efficient and fast, but you make errors along the way. And the cost of repairing the error makes up for all the savings. So look, you've taught in business schools, and I teach in business schools, and mentioned in your work that business schools have not delivered, right? They haven't delivered in a bunch of ways, not just the critique in your current book, Design for a Better World, not just those failures to appreciate the impact on the broader world, but just on more basic human-centered design, business schools have failed. Here at Berkeley, we had a design class that we had as part of our core for a number of years, and it got dropped from the core. So it's really no longer integral to how we teach business. How should the business school curriculum change to incorporate the insights that you've brought in the last couple of decades? Well, first of all, we're talking about there are two different parts to a business school. One of them is a traditional academic teaching where people get PhDs in business and degrees in business, as opposed to the MBA part, which is where you're teaching the practitioner, the people who go out and actually make use of the work. And so oh, quite often those are somewhat separate and they're taught somewhat differently too. In fact, oftentimes the professors in the business school don't teach the MBA students. You get practitioners, ad adjuncts to teach. But the other problem is that the science of business became the science of productivity and maximization. The University of Chicago Business School, in particular, or economics department, where Milton Friedman, who said that we owe our allegiance to the shareholders and not to the customers or to the employees or to the location in the, where the plant or company is located. And that has emphasized 
optimization at all for all costs. So almost all of the courses teach some kind of optimization. And it's usually about productivity. And it's usually, therefore, it's usually either cost-based or time-based. And that leaves out the human experience. It's all about profitability for the shareholders in the end. Now, profitability is important and cost is important, but we've left out the humanity, the humane element of interacting with people. Now, that's not true of all the courses. It is not true of all of business schools, but finance is usually taught about ways of optimization, avoiding cost, and finance is one of the critical core courses in a business school. And it drives a lot of what happens. Finance and then supply chain management, again, is all about efficiency. We've now discovered that that efficiency that we came about to a large extent because of the work at Toyota, the Toyota Motor System process, which is minimization of stock and really efficient. It was really efficient at manufacturing. But when there's a break in the supply chain, boom, it ends up disrupting, in this case today, the whole world. I think what happened in business is it oversimplified the definition of the world and how things worked in the world. That's changing, though. I know that lots of business schools are rethinking and rechanging and reteaching. I used to be thought of as a good teacher. And when I started teaching in the business school, I was told by my students I was the worst teacher they ever had. Why? Why? Because I didn't have PowerPoint slides. I didn't tell them what I was going to talk about each time. I didn't tell them what was going to be required on the final exam. And it didn't matter how many times I told them that there wasn't going to be any final exam and that my job was to make them think differently. They just hated the course. They hated it and hated it. For example, what I did in my course was I gave them a problem on day one. You're an automobile company and the company's suffering from loss of money. And so we've decided we're going to restructure everything we make. And we divided the company into teams. And each of them was going to make a proposal. And then the best proposals that we're going to actually implement. And so I'm dividing the class into teams and here's the problem and go work. And they will come back the next week with their solutions. And they had these wonderful solutions. And they even had the spreadsheets showing the profits and so on. And then I would, I led them into this trap deliberately because I then showed them what they had ignored. And why didn't you, you're still doing the same old stuff. Maybe there's a whole new model of automobiles we could do and this, that, and the other. And they didn't like that. But by the end of the course, I had made the teeth, taught them how to do prototypes. I said, you know, when you sit in the car and you have a conversation, the driver, and there's a passenger in the front, and there are two people in the back, it's really hard to have a conversation. The driver's left out, and the passenger in the front is kind of left out. Why can't you switch the passenger seat in the front to face backwards? First of all, their head would then be form- more forward, so easier for the driver to hear. And they would be facing the two people in the back. And I showed them, let's prototype it. How do you prototype it? I just grabbed four of the chairs in the room and put them up in this order. And they learned how they could do a prototype quickly like that. And in the end, they were wonderful, but it was so hard. And they hated my course and I got horribly bad reviews. And the next year, they would come back and they would say, remember that wonderful course you taught? I'm going to start a company. Could you be an advisor to me? I also taught them not to use PowerPoint slides. I said, please don't use PowerPoint slides and read. Tell, Talk to people. So I said, you can use PowerPoints to show pictures and images and graphs, but no words. Yeah. And then I told them, and et cetera, et cetera. And again, one student said they decided to try that in one of their classes, and their professor got very mad at them for giving a talk that way, interrupted them several times, but allowed him to finish. 
And when they were all finished, the professor said, that was one of the best talks we've heard all year, but it violated their standard way of doing things. And they wanted to know what was on the final exam. And I said, why do we have a final exam? You're going to do a project at the end and we'll see, if, we'll see how exciting that is and whether it actually makes good sense. I made them do a business model. And I remember that there was one class that they, they were really mad at me because they, it was the end of the year and they finished a business model. And they showed there was no way we could ever make a profit making this. So I failed the class. And what can I do? And I said, no, you didn't fail the class. I thought you get an A. Because learning that what you're trying to do is not going to be profitable is really important to know. But people don't talk about their failures. But their failures are the most important thing to learn about. That's where you learn. Yeah, it's interesting how people's retrospective experience is different from their contemporaneous experience. Of course, it's like that. But do you think, I mean, I want to push back on this idea of optimization. Is the problem the use of optimization or is the problem failure to correctly specify the objective function? You do want to do the optimization analysis for all the components, for cost, for time, for efficiency, for how well the system works, reliability, and how well it's going to sell. But it doesn't matter if you make the best product. I know this because I was at Apple. We made the best computer in the world, but we were losing money going bankrupt because it doesn't matter if people don't buy your stuff. This is where the management skill comes in. When you're all finished doing the analyses, you have to figure out the weighting and how important are they relative to each other. And you're going to end up with compromises. You're going to end up not optimizing this in order to make the other part better. And that's seldom done because that's the systems analysis. But if you optimize for simply one variable, you're going to actually de-optimize for many of the others. So that's the complicated thing. But that's what a good manager is about in the uh, government. That's what politicians should be doing. In COVID, people have been arguing that we follow the scientists. We listen to the scientists. We follow their advice. And I say, no, that's wrong. Do not follow the advice of scientists. And what are you saying? I thought you were a scientist. Look, the point is the scientists will tell you the science. And that's important for you to understand and to know. But you also realize if you follow their advice in COVID and you put everybody into deep quarantine as soon as they are sick, you are doing the correct thing in terms of minimizing the spread of the disease. But look what happened in China when they did this. You're also hurting their lives. We're stopping businesses. We're stopping critical businesses. We're stopping their means of employment and therefore their pay. We're stopping education. That's a different variable. Now, how do you weight those two? That's difficult and there's probably no correct answer. But that's what politicians are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be listening to all. They want to listen to the economists. They want to listen to the teachers. They want to listen to the business owners. They want to listen to the scientists. And then try to figure out working to obviously is possible together with people, a solution that is better for a society. And I think that's how I've understood your work is really a plea for a systems level thinking. We actually at Berkeley, we we thought about abandoning the name design thinking for the the course because well, because designers have always, there is a way of the pe- people, designers do think in a different way. But unfortunately, the D school at Stanford tried to simplify it. And they gave you a little basic, wonderful introductory course that people love, but is glides over many of the issues and the complexities. And so now people take this design thinking course and they think they're experts. They're not. And if you actually look at the IDO, the company that sort of launched this, you see that. This isn't what they do. 
because they're experts. And what an expert knows to do is when to violate the things that we teach people, knows when to change the rules and knows that it's more complex than this simple course. And so the problem with design thinking was good in the sense that it taught people that design is not just making it look pretty, it's, it's much deeper than that. But it also made it look too easy because these courses were so much fun. And they say, oh, now I understand. No, in fact, the hard part is design doing, not design thinking. And if you actually try to implement to do things, you discover your thinking wasn't complete. So you need to integrate doing and thinking. Don, thank you so much for joining. It's been a lot of fun. I think we could probably talk all day. I have a million examples. Every time I read your books, not only do I see the examples that you highlight in the world, but I start seeing the world in different ways. It's my goal, by the way. I feel I succeed if I make people think differently, think more deeply. Thank you. Yeah. And the latest book is called Design for a Better World. But don't forget, living with complexity, design of future things, emotional design, design of everyday things, which I think this will be selling long after both of us are gone. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Greg. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.